On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Ethel. And Ethel was in a toxic relationship with a physically violent abuser who used their PTSD as an excuse for everything. It's a story of victim playing, infidelity, guilt, and the power of persuasion. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of domestic violence. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. Now, if you have not been to our website recently and want to be a guest on our show, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Press that button, and away we will go from there. If you have not heard back from me yet, then please do check your junk mail, because I might have done that a long time ago, and sometimes it goes to junk mail. So please do check that. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have a community support forum. Top of the page, there's a button that says community support. What's there? It's our own safe social network. Yes, we have community members on there posting in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support group meetings on Wednesdays and Saturday nights. We have prompt workbooks for our episodes to dig deeper and for you to gain more clarity into your relationships and life. You can also create and run your own events. This Wednesday, we will be having a Burn, Break, or Bury event. It's going to be fantastic. Our last one was amazing. Our community members on there are all amazing, and they are there to support you. You will also make tons of friends in the process. So please do join our community today at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, community support button. Another way to get support is to go to domesticshelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. Domesticshelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing and can also connect you with local resources like shelters and find ways to heal and move forward. So please do visit domesticshelters.org to access this free resource. And things on our list today, um, October 30th, everyone, it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month and we are raising money or awareness and awareness for domestic violence. And I will be doing a 5k run, which is 3.1 miles on October 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern. You can do it at the exact same time as me. Others are already on board. I saw a wonderful placard that someone made uh, for their run. It was the hashtag run for DV. Use that hashtag. Um, right now I'm on TikTok. I have some update videos on there as well where I hashtag it, hashtag run for DV. So join us on October 30th, 8 p.m. Eastern time. I will be starting my run at the base of the CN Tower in Toronto. And maybe I will see you there. 
Now, one podcast that you should listen to is the Toxic Workplace Podcast. It's a new podcast by our friend Carly, and Carly interviews people just like we interview people on this show about their experiences in a toxic workplace, helps people guide themselves through it, learn what to do. It's a wonderful podcast. Carly is a great host, so please do go to ToxicWorkplacePodcast.com and listen to that podcast today. Also on our list here, on Thursday this week, I will be interviewing a person named Mark Vicente. I don't know if I'm saying that properly, and he was in a documentary recently. He's also a documentary filmmaker, but he was in a recent one called The Vow about the cult called Nexium. And I don't know if people have listened to, or sorry, have heard or uh, of this cult or have watched this documentary. But if you want to ask some questions, uh, send me your questions and hopefully I'll get a chance to ask them to Mark. And then I think in a couple of weeks, you'll hear that episode. So please do send that in. And a big shout out here to Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, if it was not for you and this medium, we wouldn't be here helping so many people. So thank you to Apple Podcasts. So if you do listen to our podcast, try to listen to it on Apple. And before we begin our show today, I just want to say there's a trigger warning. We talk about sexual abuse. We talk about child abuse. We talk about physical abuse. And I mean, we really talk about physical abuse. It gets graphic here. Uh, we have Ethel, who is a survivor, and she's in, in a lot of ways lucky to be alive with this person that she was dealing with, you know, and I'm happy that she was here. She's going to help so many of you out there, uh, guide you through it. She was, she's, she's very new to being out. So it's rare that we do one where someone is this brand new being out, but we thought it was really important, especially this month, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, to have Ethel on and tell her story. So a big thank you to Ethel. And now, without further ado, here is my episode with Ethel. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, we have Ethel. How are you? I'm doing okay. <laughs> well, everyone, today we are going to hear Ethel's story. And her story is one of intimate partner violence and control, and it's a scary story. And Ethel has been through a lot. So I just want to thank you for being here with me today, and you're going to share your story, and you're going to help a lot of people, so thank you for being here. And now, without further ado, Ethel... The floor is now yours. Thank you, Chad. Um, I just want to say that I'm I'm not very far out in my story compared to some of the others I've heard on your site. So I'm still processing everything that's happened to me. Um, but I've I've definitely found your site to be one of the um, the biggest helpers for me. It's been about five months since. Um, the attack that from my narc and um so it's really helped me a lot to hear other women um talk about their stories it's been very validating to me as i'm going through this process of 
of trying to decipher what happened to me and to recognize that I'm not crazy. Um, so that's why I decided to come on today to share my story um, of somebody who's still in the process of the story. So I think it's important probably to go back and tell a little bit about my childhood and my past before I met um, my narc, B. Um, so I grew up in a very strict Christian home. Um, I went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday. It was a very legalistic kind of guilt. Um, everything was about guilt in the church. Even though I had a great time growing up in the church, I really embraced it. I loved, I loved my church. Um, but I think a good part of that might be ha, ha, is play, played into um, some of the choices I've made in my life along the way. So, so I had a really good childhood until I was about. 11 when my parents split up my um, dad had an affair and um, I have two siblings and I think at that time uh, my mom um, has always been a very very negative person Um, my dad which I'm kind of looking into therapy right now has narcissistic tendencies for sure and my mom is very codependent and negative so Growing up in the house, she was, uh, I didn't have a lot of attention at all for my father. Uh, he worked and was just kind of did his own thing. And, but I did have a mom that was a, was a great caregiver. She actually taught me very well how to be codependent. <laughs> and, um, and I, one of her strengths is caregiving. So I kind of took that from her, uh, I think later on in my life, um, so after my parents split, my dad was kind of out of the picture for a while, but he, um, you know, he would be around. But I think that um, one of my issues was that I, I was a very angry teenager over the divorce and wanted my dad's attention. So I was very vocal and angry and doing whatever I could possibly do to get his attention, um, I even went as far as to, uh, because he would do activities with my brother, but he wouldn't do activities with my sister and I. So I started hunting. Um, I started fishing, different things to get his attention. Um, My dad also, um, I think I started with some serious body image crisis when I was 15, and that will play into a little bit of my story. But um, my dad... On the two occasions, he's taken me out with him somewhere, took me out when I was a teenager, and um, was very flat-chested, so I was teased unmercifully about that most of my life, and um, my dad took me out in, in front of a bunch of his his peers and ridiculed me in front of these men, um, you know, basically about my breast size, so my mother would would always have something negative to say about how I looked. And if I didn't look pristine or have myself together, then she felt that was a reflection on her, I think, that was a negative reflection on her. So I kind of grew up with a lot, with a little bit of a low self-esteem, really didn't have any reason to have a low self-esteem. Uh, you know, I, I kind of look back and I'm like, well, I didn't have a reason to have a low self-esteem, but... I, I definitely did. So I, I really was attention-seeking from, from, from men. 
I got involved with my um, my first husband at the age of 16, um, and and I was pretty naive and innocent, and um, and he was an alcoholic. And we wound up getting, we dated for about five years. We got uh, married when I was in college. Um, and I think the, the, the highs and the lows of that relationship, fighting all the time, um, you know, we would, we would fight and he would cheat on me and we'd get back together. And then, you know, it was those ups and downs. And I think at that time I thought, well, this is love because I have this just, burning feeling for him you know like when when we're fighting it's desperate and then when we're together it's great but after we got married um his alcoholism um was so bad that i did get out of the marriage after about 14 months and so that was a huge hurdle for me i was you know very suicidal at the time i had just started a career as a nurse i was working in an emergency room which was a lot of stress. Um, but mentally, it took me a really long time to break away from him. So for a couple years, I went back and forth with him and another guy that I was dating. Um, and eventually, I started working in a trauma center. And I met my second husband, who was um, a really great guy. Um, he came from a very dysfunctional household of alcoholics, but he was a steady, kind of a steady guy. He was really a really good friend of mine and, um, well-liked by everybody. And I wind up sleeping with him one night after a Christmas party and getting pregnant. I felt the pressure of this from society about not being married. So one day I just said to him, Hey, let's go get married. So we just went and got married. So we got married in August, and we had our first child um, in December. So obviously I had an issue with impulsiveness, <laughs> but that, that actually made things better uh, for me for a while. And um, he was an amazing father. He was very tolerant of me. And um, then... Not planning to have another child, um, I get pregnant again with our daughter. And uh, she's born about three years into the marriage. <clears throat> and um, so she was born in August. And all of a sudden in December, uh, my husband passes away. So he just got sick one day. And six days later, he was dead. I had a three-year-old and a 15-week-old. So that was just beyond devastating. So I, I have a question, and, and I'm sorry, yeah. and, you know, I apologize uh, for interrupting. I'm sorry that this happened, uh, you know, but when you said um, that he, I think the wording was that he would put up, he could put up with me. What does that mean? He was just very tolerant and very loving, um, and he was an incredible father. Um, and that would, you know, I think for me, I felt like I had to stir things up because I was so used to that up and then down, up and down. So I would stir things up, and he, he, you know, he wouldn't fall for it. So he would basically just remain calm, and um, and I think without having that that 
intense feeling that I thought was love, I felt like I didn't love him, uh, really. So I you, think you, you, the- you are so used to the chaos of the highs and lows. You have zero idea of what normality is and something being just flatlined or normal. And right. you're not used to calm. So you you are used to the, the, the giant fight and then the awesome making up. Right. And you're, you're used to those two feelings, uh, a manic high and a manic low. And right. so here's a guy who's a good guy. You're not used to this. You're going along with it. And you deep down know that this isn't fitting for you, but at the same time, maybe it is. You just had to, you were not mature enough to understand, uh, what you, uh, you were at that point. I'm saying what you were, but how you were right. acting or reacting to things. You had zero emotional IQ at that point right. of your life. Absolutely. You summed it up perfectly. And I was 28 at the age of him passing away and he was 32 uh, and I grew up a lot after that. So he passed away in December. In the end of February, because um, I had these two small children, um, I decided to go visit my sister in um, in the state that she lived in just to have some, some time away to kind of get myself together. And on my way home, on the airplane, I meet sitting next to me is husband number three. So we have about two, two hours on a flight. And and just, I'm just going to interrupt for one second, just so everyone knows that this story is about husband number four. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because right now what's happening is you're going from relationship to relationship and uh, you're not doing any work after to understand why these things have happened. And exactly. So so I, I apologize for interrupting. Continue. The plane, mm-hmm. marriage number yeah, three. Yeah, I think it's important. It's definitely important to know that because um, it'll make sense as to why I, or I'm beginning to understand now because I'm doing the work, how I got into the marriage with uh, my fourth husband, B. So I meet my third husband on this airplane. Uh, we hit it off right away. Um, and uh, I was uh, moving um, about, I was moving close to my parents and I had my house on the market because I needed childcare. So I was attending a church at the time um, and I, they had a, he was in the military and they had a military program. And so I invited him to church and I just gave him my name and my church. And I figured if he liked me, he'd show up. So that was on a Monday, Sunday, I go to church and he's sitting there on the back pew waiting for me. So it was a fast romance. Within three weeks, he's telling me he loves me. He's showering me with attention. He's, you know, I'm getting this love and affection and words from him that I have not, I've never had from, from anybody. And I feel like, you know, 
I feel this excitement to be around him. And um, this, finally, someone understands me. And um, so he, he asked me to marry him. And within seven weeks, we get married. So my husband died in December. And in April, I'm married again. About seven weeks after that, he goes out to sea. Um, and he's gone for six months. So at that time, I, I'm still heavily grieving the death of my spouse. I have in no way, shape, or form dealt with the death of husband number two. I'm now married to this new person, and um, all of my support is gone because everyone's angry at me um, for marrying somebody I don't know with two small children. And in my family, I was always, I feel, uh, the black sheep, like I was the one that didn't follow the rules. I mean, I, I never had a, um, you know, I didn't drink. I didn't, I didn't party. I didn't do any of those things, but I didn't, I also wasn't going to follow the rules of the household. So I, I was angry. So I often felt like a failure. Um, so after this marriage, I was like, there's no way I'm going to fail with this marriage. And I stuck it out. And just a little bit of this marriage, I was in this marriage for 20 years. Um, my husband was a serial cheater. Uh, we did have another child. Um, we had a child together. And so because my two older children didn't have a father, I didn't want to be a failure and prove ev to everybody that I made a mistake. I stayed in the marriage. Um, he... Um, attempted to burn, commit arson and burn our house down. At one point, I caught him. He was making counterfeit money. I caught him before passing too much of that out. Um, now, where religion comes in with this was that he was also of the Christian faith, and after about five years of being married, I found out at that time about these affairs he was having and we spent a lot of time in Christian counseling. He actually was working for a church. Um, he was like the head of the men's group. So I think that I just was trying to tell myself every time he would tell me he had changed, you know, I didn't want to be a failure. So I would just believe him. So the marriage wind up ending, um, after he embezzled from the church, lost his job um, we, by that time, our son was a teenager and he has, um, mild autism and he was having a lot of, um, emotional issues, suicidal ideation. He was dabbing into some drugs. So I decided to stay with my husband number three for a little while longer. He got a job in another state and I moved with him uprooted from my hometown of 47 years and moved to another state. It was actually a really great thing that I did that because I was able to kind of see what was going on in my life. I was away from everyone who knew my problems, knew about my marriage. Uh, it was like a start over. Um, and so shortly after moving out of state, I lost a lot of weight. I got into shape. I started to recognize the patterns in my marriage and I ended it. So you end your marriage here. 
And mm-hmm. I guess let's just do a roundup of um, the issues up until this point of your life that um, you may have. And, you know, you are a codependent person, which is a big issue for you. Right. You are someone who has been, um, what's the best way to put it, that you are, um, I guess, trying to earn love. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And then within these marriages here, you have been used to chaos your whole entire mm-hmm. life. And now we're talking about 47 years of chaos. So that's hard to reverse pretty quickly. Including my career, because my career was emergency nursing, which is all chaos. And so I was used to functioning well in that situation. And so what are some other things that you, you know, obviously you're able to, you've had two partners. One is an alcoholic. Another one is, uh, you know, uh, an adulterer is a thief and all of these other things. So as far as, you know, uh, you're not scared away of scary things. Um, you know, these things aren't phasing you at all when you see them that to you, that's like, I've dealt with it. I'm used to it. Um, so these things that might be a red flag for someone else, for you, it's like, you know, it's, it's Tuesday, you know, it's just a regular day of the week. So, and I'm glad you said that because I kind of skipped over the part about religion. So because I grew up and, you know, this real strict faith-based religion of guilt, um, I had what, what felt like this, uh, like I was going to get married one time and that would be it. And that God would not forgive me if I ended my marriage. So with the first marriage, I stayed for as long as I could take it until I was suicidal. And then I reasoned in my mind, well, okay, God is going to forgive me for this because, no one can take this. Like I was severely depressed. It was, it was horrible. So I did find the inner strength to get out of that. But I think religion, you know, was, has always played a big part in my choices. So you also now have guilt that runs you. You have shame that runs you. You are now three relationships in, you have three children And now the perception of what am I? What has my life become? Who am I? Um, You know, you know, this isn't what I planned when I was 19 years old. How did I get here? And now all of these things are in your head and these things can help run you as far as, you know, all these things now have happened. And a lot of the time, especially when you leave a a relationship that might have been a bad relationship, the next relationship you're going to get into, you're going to be like, I'm looking for the exact opposite of what this person was like. And when you meet the exact opposite, you're like, oh my God, he's the exact opposite of, of what I like or what this other person was like. This person must be great. And you don't even look at the... 
red flags that might be staring at you in the face because they're just the exact opposite. And all of a sudden, you have a wolf in sheep's clothing, and I have a feeling that this is what's about to happen to you. So uh, are there – I think I've summed up pretty much all the issues. So, um, you know, how did you meet number four, a.k.a. B? (laughs) Well, you did say something very important about my third husband that I was married to for 20 years. He was um, lazy. Um, He – expected me as a Christian wife to have sex with him at least every 72 hours to do my wifely duty. Um, I always had to be the initiator of everything. I did 95% of everything in the home. Um, I earned most of the money. I did the discipline. So I basically carried the weight of everything. And I was always a fighter, I would say, for fighting for him to show me some love and affection, which he would do from time to time, but he was lazy. So basically I just had a fourth child that I was caretaking for. So with that being said, I, I enter into the dating world and I make up my mind that, you know, I'm going, I didn't go through hell for 20 years in this marriage and put up with all the things that I put up with to not get what I want now. And I had, you know, two grown children out of the house and one, one one that was still in high school. And I had pretty much sunk my whole life into my children. So I'm finally kind of breaking out of that and I'm rediscovering like who it, who and who is Ethel. Okay. And I, um, just, I was going out on dates. That was like a full-time job on those dating sites. Uh, I met some pretty funny and crazy people. I would qu- Those people I would quickly be able to determine, um, nope, nope, nope. I dated someone for about six months. He definitely wasn't giving me the affection and the attention I wanted, so I was able to end that with him. Um, and then I wasn't looking. So I just decided I'm going to do me. And along comes my narc. And the way that I met him, um, so I'm a nurse and I go into people's homes and I um, infuse very expensive medications. So I work for a pharmaceutical company. And I have this particular patient that I see every three days and she had a dog. And the dog was vicious and bit me. So we had been talking for a little while about I had two dogs that were very ill-behaved, and um, we were had been talking about getting a dog trainer to come in and help with her dog. So after the dog bit me, she calls in this dog trainer. So I remember it like yesterday. It was, it was um, three and a half years ago. It's in the wintertime. It's like 30 degrees outside, and I, I pull up to my patient's home, and there's a Harley motorcycle sitting outside, and I'm thinking, well, who in the hell is – on a Harley when it's freezing, right? And I walk in, and there he is, and and it was immediate chemistry. Um, And and he was just, you know, uh, kind of look like he's got very long hair, looks like a hippie, kind of acts like a hippie when he's with his clients. Um, 
and we hit it off there. You know, I was trying to be professional while I was working, but I decided to hire him to come help me with my dogs. So later that day, um, while I'm working, I get text message from him. And part of why this is important was these other people that, that I had been talking to on dating sites and things like that, well, within a few minutes, they were all going to sex or they, no one really wanted to know who I was. And I wanted this time around when I had another relationship, I wanted somebody who really cared about me. I wanted, I wasn't interested in, you know, just going out and having sex with people. So he begins texting me and, and basically he says, you know, it was great to meet you. Um, I can't wait to work with you. And, and I was like, wow, well, you're an amazing dog whisperer. And he says, well, nothing makes a man stay better than to have a beautiful woman tell him he did a great job. And so then at that time, I thought, okay, well, this guy, this guy likes me. So I said, great, I'll take a ride on the Harley at the end of our session. So that began the texting. We're texting back and forth, and everything he's saying is like he's a brilliant writer. He's brilliant with poetry. He's brilliant with writing. And he's just saying all the right things. And I go to see my patient again, and she's like, you know, hey, Ethel, I think maybe B has a girlfriend. So I go and I look him up on Facebook, and there's nothing. I, I kind of see a picture that I tap on. And I go to this girl's page, and then I realize, oh, he's in a relationship with a girl. So we had plans to meet up for dinner, and um, I, 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 I wrote him, and I said, are you in a relationship? And he's like, well, I mean, I'm living with someone. And I was like, well, that's not okay with me. And he's like, well, we've been over for several months, and I'm just staying on the couch. I just haven't found any place to go yet. And I was like, well give me a call when you're done with that because I'm not into that. And so I got off the phone with him uh, or quit talking to him. Well, four days later, I get a telephone call from him and he's moved out into an apartment. And I thought, wow, you know, this guy really likes me and he's telling me the truth. Um, and, you know, he was just waiting to move out. So we decided to meet up for our first date. And so we met at this restaurant. It was funny because um, in the future, he does not like if you're one minute late, like he gets very angry. And I was about an hour late for the state because I got lost and didn't know where I was going. And he waits for me. And we're in the city in this little restaurant. And we're having a great time. We're talking, just having fun together. And then he says, well, you know, I have some things to tell you before we can go forward. So then he proceeds to tell me um, that he is a Iraq war veteran. Um, that when he went to war, he came back and he became an alcoholic and, um, about 18 months after coming back from war, he wind up going to jail for attempted murder. And I was like, my heart just dropped. And I was like, oh, my God. So he tells me that, um, you know, he had been at a, he was drunk. He had a daughter um, and a wife. And he had been at a wedding. He got an altercation with some people there, or, you know, like a verbal argument with some people at the wedding. 
and he he left the wedding and went and got a fifth of um, like Jim Bean and drank it all in 45 minutes. Uh, and he had already been drinking all day and he was a big pothead too, or smoking a lot of marijuana. And he had gone to a friend's house, his car had gotten towed and he walked seven miles back to his, his, him and his wife's home. And so the story that he basically told me was that he doesn't remember anything. And, um, he just remembered waking up to guns to his head and then waking up a couple days later in jail. And so basically he had beat his wife and she had had a brain bleed and a collapsed lung. And he had wind up getting eight to 20 years in state prison for the attempted murder. And so he's telling me this. And I, I remember thinking, Oh my God, like, um, you got to get up and leave, right? Like I, I just got rid of somebody who lied to me, did all kinds of crazy things. I don't need another liar or crazy person in my life, but he was so persuasive. Like his, his story was so sad and he was just talking about, you know, how far he's come since he has been out and, um, you know, he's been sober for all these years and how much he learned while he was away and in jail and, um, how he's a, you know, how the dogs have saved his life and, um, you know, uh, how he wants to help veterans, um, just like he's been helped by his, um, service dog. And that's his goal is to, um, to help other people and, um, you know, and all. So I'm sure there's more he told me to the story at that time. But So here he is telling you a horrible thing he did that he mm-hmm. had to pay a debt to society for for a very long time. Right. And your emergency lights as everyone's emergency light would be blinking really hard. Right. And you are at this table with him and he gives his spiel and his spiel is that he wants to help others. He's giving you this whole entire thing of I've learned I know what mm-hmm. happened. He didn't admit to, uh, first of all, he, he did not admit his guilt here. He right. doesn't even remember what happened. Right. You know, there's no admission of, of guilt, but yet he, he wants to help people like him. People right. who were, at the, were in the war, people that had right. to go through fighting. And yours is a, an issue where he has, or I'm air quoting right now, you know, PTSD. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. And that, that. Sorry, continue. Well, I also forgot to say that um, he also had a very abusive childhood. Um, he did. He told. I think he told me about that on that night too. Um, oh yes, I forgot those. That's very important. He didn't know who his mother was, and his dad was also a criminal and a con artist. And he had been raised for a little while by his aunt and uncle, which he called his mom and pop. And when he was about five years old, this was part of the story, too, because this was a, the real one of the real clinchers, I think, 
um, for me. I don't know how I forgot this, but when he was five years old, his story is he's with his grandma and this man comes in and grabs him, which is his real father, um, takes him, beats his grandmother almost to death with a, with a pan and shoves him into this convertible car and slams his hand into the car door and he's screaming and bleeding and his father punches him and knocks him out. So that was his first beating and took him to another state. And he lived from like the age of five to about the age of maybe 12 to 13 with his father, where his father um, was a schizophrenic, an alcoholic, um, a con artist, all these really horrible things and beat him. Um, so he tells his story. I do believe that it's true that he was abused. Um, he would be left at home for days while his dad was out on bingers. He had a very um, abusive stepmom. Um, he was sexually abused. Um, he his he claims that his dad was also a dog trainer, and his dad would buy him things from time to time, and then would uh, had bought him a dog, which was where he would find his solace would be either out in the woods or in the um, dog house with the dog. So he's telling me this, my heart's like bleeding. Oh my God, this kid, you know, and his dad gets mad at him one day, comes home, murders his dog. Um, and then eventually he tells the story about how his dad was on a binger, um, came home, beat him really bad and threw him in a closet, locked him in the closet for three days um, when he finally got out of the closet, he tried to murder his dad. His dad was passed out on a bed, and um, he was full of anger, and he, he took an item and was beating his dad. Uh, he didn't kill his dad, but that's how he wound up finally getting out of the abuse and then later going back in his teenage years to live with his mom and pop. So um, it has been validated that he had a lot of that abuse. So... So um, just to point out here, being abused doesn't give you the right to abuse other people. And he's now taking these situations and with you creating a guilt-like situation, a victim-playing situation where he is a victim and he's not taking responsibility and he has now all of these things to blame everything on. And that's, you know, the narrative that he is sowing here for you. And right Mm -hmm. now you're, you're, you've bought into a a lot of it, but is there anything else that starts to happen where eventually you become like hook, line and sinker? Um, I think the first hook came like at the end of that um, dinner, he asked, he, he says to me, I don't want this evening to end. And he asked me to take a walk around the city with him. So at the time, my son, my youngest son, is on drugs. I'm a single parent. I'm going through a lot emotionally with my child. And we walk around the city. He's very much a gentleman. He's very kind. Um, And, you know, I'm talking with him. And at the the very end of the walk, when I get to my car, um, I'm kind of crying about my, my son. And he gives me this hug. Um, and he just holds me and, um, and that was, 
that was the hook. I, you know, he had been talking to me for two weeks. He had been very interested in me, but I think at that moment it felt so genuine and it was so needed. Like I needed someone to hold me. So I think from that point, um, and he was funny. Um, he was exciting. Um, and I continued talking to him and he wound up coming to my house, um, a few days later to train my dogs, but we, we spent like four hours just laughing and talking and having a great time. And he was just so interested in me. He was always asking me tons of questions. And now I understand, you know, what, what he needed to do was find out everything about me so that he could use it on me later. So he was really big about asking me everything about myself, you know, every little detail he wanted to know. And I thought, wow, this guy just really likes me. You know, he's, he's telling me, you know, um, you know, I'm not a liar. I'm not like the other guys, you know, he's, he's working overtime to convince me that, um, I'm safe with him. Um, that, you know, he's, he's had a past life and he's got a, a life now that where he's a different person. And so as he's showing me all this interest in, you know, what I think he cares about who I am and he's, he's working overtime to talk to me and tell me, you know, that he's, he's a good person. Um, I'm slowly falling for it, but I, I think my first, so then, well, so then we wind up having sex and um, that's my, probably my final hook right there, like after that, because I grew up in a, such a guilt Christian background that um, I usually, anybody I had sex with, I wind up from teenage on up, I wind up either being in a long-term relationship with them or marrying them, right? And so, I mean... The sex was just unbelievable. Like I had, I had never experienced anything like it. Um, and it was, um, you know, addicting from the very beginning. I had come out of a, you know, a marriage where it was my duty every 72 hours to have sex with my husband. And now I've got this person that wants to show me all these things I've never experienced. He's very sensual. He's very sexy. He's exciting. He's fun. Um, he's, you know, we're kayaking, we're hiking, we're, um, you know, we're riding on a Harley. Um, and it was all very exciting. Now I had, you know, I had some things in my life that I thought lines that I would never cross that had to do with my, you know, my religious upbringing, which was I was never going to have anybody living in my home while I had a child there. I didn't believe in living together. But within three weeks, he's living with me. Um, and I can't, I can't stop myself, right? Um, the first really big red flag with him was, I think on our second date, we took a motorcycle ride to Gettysburg. And, um, while we were there, he, um, he gives me the first PTSD testing. Okay. So he, the, the previous year prior, uh, the year prior to that, he had had a motorcycle accident with his ex-girlfriend, um, there in Gettysburg. So while we're on the bike, this car just gets a little bit close to us 
and he turns around and he's screaming. I mean, like screaming all kinds of obscenities. He's just severely angry and he's raging at this car. And I have never experienced anything like it ever. And I don't know what to do. I just start rubbing his back and saying, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I fall right into the caregiver role. It's all right. It's all right. You know? Um, and so then he, then he calms down and we go park and we walk uh, over to the cemetery uh, in, at, in Gettysburg. And, um, you know, we walk a little bit and all of a sudden he falls down on one knee and he starts acting like he's crying and I was like, are you okay? And he's like, so he, we're in this military cemetery. And he just starts saying, you know, I should have died over there in the war. I, I don't deserve to be alive. And, and he's tearing and everything. And I remember thinking to myself, is this guy for real? Because it seemed so fake. But I had never met anybody with PTSD. And... I had never experienced what I had just experienced a few minutes before that, and I I just didn't know what to do. So I just stepped right into caretaking, like, you know, just um, sitting down with him and, you know, holding him and coddling him and all those other things, which became, you know, what what, you know, I did for him mostly throughout our entire relationship. So I, I, he was definitely testing me at that time to see how I was going to react to his, his shenanigans. And, and my, you know, my gut was telling me this isn't authentic, but I excused his behavior because of his sad story about PTSD and his abuse. In the beginning, it was just like this mad love story. I mean, he was telling everybody just how wonderful I was. He was parading me around town, showing me off. He was just so happy. I was so happy. He was very affectionate. Um, He just gave me a ton of attention. Like I said, we were, we had like this incredible sexual relationship. So he started um, like within the first like, three or four months whispering in my ear about, cause we were having all this great sex and he's introducing me to stuff that, you know, I never experienced. And he starts whispering, you know, about how erotic, erotic it is for him to have sex with other people. And he wants me to be involved in sex with other people with him. And so this is where the first kind of arguing begins because I'm like, no, you know, I don't want that. You know, he would say to me, um, well, you can't say no until you try it. And he's had all these different experiences. And because he's had those experiences, he knows what he likes and doesn't like. And so I was like, well, you know, if you wanted me to try crack cocaine, I would be okay saying no to that and never feeling like I've missed out on anything. And he's like, well, if you want me to go to church with you, I'll do that because he he was not a believer. He was a um, agnostic. And I was like, well, I think there's a little bit of a difference between church and a threesome or a foursome. So that's how he began working on me in that area. And so whenever the subject would be brought up, he would get super excited. The sex would be great. He'd be whispering in my ear, you know, oh, this would be great and so forth and so on. So the first time he got physical with me, um, he would, he was 
he was living in an apartment that the apartment he had moved out in. And, um, and he had really long, he had really long hair down to his waist and I had long hair at the time and I was just also excited to be around him. I was like a little kid. I was always laughing, giggling, jumping up and down. It was just like, you know, I was 12 again. And, um, so I kind of reached around and I grabbed his, his braid and I tugged it in a playful way. And the next thing you know, he's got me by the hair and he has just thrown me onto the ground and he's forcefully pulling my hair and holding me onto the ground. And I was like, uh, what? I started screaming and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, let go of me. And then he, he lets go of me and he backs up and he, he realizes what he's done. And I was like, what? What did you, why did you do that? You know, why did you do that? Like, I'm out of here. And so then he starts begging. He's begging. He's like, it's my PTSD. You know, no one can touch my hair and uh, this and that. And he's going on and on. He gives me this big, long, you know, talk about how no one can touch his hair. And it comes from being in prison. Uh, There was a lot of stuff about being in prison um, and also PTSD from the war. So I, I, I let it go. And I let, I accepted his answer. And he was like, you have to be careful with ever touching my face and pulling my hair. And I thought, well, okay, it's part of his PTSD. He was in prison. Um, He got stabbed when he was in prison. And so there was also this kind of thing where he would always tell me he was 100% trustworthy. He wasn't like the other men. But I better never open his drawers and look in his drawers, his clothes, I better never look in his paperwork. I better never look in his wallet. And if he ever finds out I look in anything of his, we are over. And so I was just kind of petrified about that. You know, I was kind of petrified to touch any of his stuff. But that was his way of, you know, keeping me away from the things that I was going to find out later. (laughs) So how far into your relationship now are you when this first uh, intimate partner violence happens? You know, I'm thinking it's like three or four months. Okay, so so three or four months has gone by. This incident occurs right here. You are, you know, have already been trained or groomed to uh, forgive his... uh, uh, anger issues, his outbursts, and now his violent physical behavior, blaming it on his PTSD, his childhood, his Iraq war, his time in jail. He's not taken responsibility yes. for ever, anything, and he's now also setting fear boundaries with you. You're not allowed to do Mm -hmm. this. You're not allowed to do that. You can't touch this. He's creating a separation for you to not find out about anything that he doesn't want you to find out about. And you are already afraid of those outbursts that have occurred. And you don't want to see those outbursts again. And, you know, from the beginning of when you met him, when he leaves his ex's home in four days and that initial hook gets into you of like, this guy really must like me to the point where you are like, this guy's really into, into me. He's said all of the right things. He knows everything now about me and, you know, 
uh, all of these things that I'm looking for that are the opposite of my ex, I've excused all of these other giant red flags. You know, a lot of this, yes, I'm scared, but at the same time, I'm used to this kind of up and down chaos. I'm, I'm still here. The sex is great. And, you know, and also within this time, boundaries are trying to be pushed. Um, yes. mental boundaries, sexual boundaries with your body. And now, uh, you have physical boundaries as well. So you're in a really bad spot here at the three or four month mark with everything that he's been able to get away with and the trap in which was set to let that continue. So, um, you know, what happens, I guess, from here on out? Um, you know, one thing he would do is he, he knew, uh, about my religious convictions. Right. And so he knew that I didn't like the fact that we were living together, basically back and forth between two homes. He knew that I cared about marriage and he would always say, I'm never getting married. And he would say, I'm choosing you daily. And that's all that we need. And that's a bigger gift of choosing you daily. So he would do that. Um, the, uh, and I assume that I- when he says, I don't want to get married and I'm choosing you daily, that your attachment style then, based upon how you grew up, says to, says to you, like you, you say to yourself, oh, he doesn't want me. Now I'm going over on that side and I want to get married. How do I convince him to get married? Yes, absolutely. You pegged it. Um, You know, I think he knew, he definitely knew what he was doing by planting those seeds in my brain. And then in the beginning for the first like two or three months, I forgot to say this, I, I, I had a really hard time letting down my, barrier my wall barrier and he would always say you know just let yourself go just be free let yourself go all these other things and I felt scared of him not physically scared of him but I felt very scared it was these it was my gut telling me run but what I was convincing myself of was here's somebody giving me all this affection and attention and love that I've been fighting for for so many years. And that's why I'm scared of it. So I'm convincing myself, you know, I'm just scared because I finally met my person. And so somewhere in the three or four month mark, I basically just gave in and I thought, okay, I'm going for the ride. So that was the final thing. And then, you know, for me, I was like, I'm not being in this relationship with him without getting married. And I, I've journaled some in the past, over the past few years, and I go back and I read, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm questioning. Why should I marry this guy all through my journals? Like, my gut was telling me all along, but I, you know, this reverse psychology he would use on me um, about things, you know, I don't need this financially. I don't need anything. But then I would wind up paying for most of the stuff. Because I would be like, well, you know, I know you don't have a lot of money. Let me pay for this. And my giving nature would have me paying for everything. Because at the time, he was just beginning to build up his dog business. Um, he was working because he was a felon. He was working a job where he didn't make a lot of money. 
And so he was about a year into his dog business when I met him. And then shortly after that, you know, the dog business really started picking up and he was making quite a bit of money. But even though he was making money, um, I wind up being the one to pay most of the time for things. And so anytime a holiday would come, it would be he hated Christmas. Uh, He didn't celebrate birthdays. He didn't celebrate anything, really. And he would do everything in his power to kind of ruin that holiday for me. Um, He would basically tell me, he he began isolating me then at the time uh, because he wanted me by his side all the time. So anytime that I wasn't working, I was with him. Uh, I would go with him to his dog training events. I was just by his side all the time. And for me, that was great because he wanted my attention, right? But he was basically kind of pulling me away from, well, it. I guess if I go back to this, like I was in a different state and I didn't have a lot of friends at the time. So it would probably was very easy for me to step right into that because I just had my patience and I didn't really know a lot of people except for the people he was introducing me into, mm-hmm. introducing me to. So I just stepped right into this world of his and went with it. And then he tried to isolate me from my children. He would tell me, you know, my kids weren't good kids. Um, you know, I needed to just face that they were bad people and it was him and I against the world. And I needed to just go ahead and let them go. And uh, he really did not get along with my son very well. Um, And my son, of course, at the time was very combative. Um, He was sneaking out all the time. He he was just in a lot of trouble. Um, And one night here, all this um, commotion going on down in the basement. Um, And so next thing you know, they come upstairs. My son's finger is bleeding B's face is cut, and I guess he had threatened my son, and my son had gone down into the basement to hide from him and lock himself into the in the bathroom, and he had bust the door open, and they had gotten into an altercation. But at the time, my son was so unruly that no one believed my son. We all believed B's story, except for my ex-husband, my son's father, and his older brother. Um, no one believed him. And so I just, I believed, you know, B's story that he had, you know, my son attacked him and that he had to put him in a chokehold and, um, and, and just, I just let it go. And it separated me from my older child for a long while because my older son was angry and was angry at me for not believing my youngest child. Um, so that incident happened. Um, so I started pressuring him after a while. Okay. I got to go back. Um, somewhere around the five or six month mark, he convinces me into having a sexual relationship with another person. Um, and, and that, you know, he's talking in my ear all the time. He's just, he's like getting all excited whenever he talks about it. And then the sex is great for a couple of weeks because he's like a little kid on Christmas morning. And, um, so I begin because I want to be that woman, the one woman, cause he has this whole line of abusing women for years. He would even brag about it. He would tell on himself, 
he would say, you know, back in my former life, I had sex with this person, left him out in the woods and drove off. Um, I did this to this person, but that was my former life. Uh, he would tell me that he also told me that he could train people and he could train me. And I was like, no, you're not going to train me. Right. Like I, he would tell me he didn't have feelings like other people. Um, he didn't know how to love because of his abuse. But for some reason, Ethel thought she could show him the love he never had as a child and that, you know, I could caretake for him and mother him and love on him and be this woman that he was always hoping for and that love would break through all of his pain. This was my belief. And... Um, he's breaking me down in so many ways, but I'm not recognizing it. I'm becoming very desperate for his attention. Um, some fighting is starting over the sexual stuff. And so, well, I, we would go back and forth with that kind of thing to where we would be talking about it, um, while we were having intimacy, kind of like, you know, just for uh, turn on purposes, we would talk about it. So we'd talk about it, and the next thing you know, he's out trying to find people for us to have sex with. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. I didn't say okay to that. So he would, he would, he would get me so confused about all of it, and we would argue about it. And the next thing you know, I come home from work one day, and somebody's there in the house waiting for us. And so I was just like, oh, my God. So I participated. And afterwards, I was just emotionally devastated about it. But I kept it to myself because he was so excited. Uh, for a month, he was just, you're the woman for me. Uh, all these reasons why he loves me. Um it's all about us. You know, it's not about that other person. It's not about anything else. It's about us. So that begins a source of fighting between us because I'm struggling internally over the issue. And eventually um, I have to move out of my home that I'm in. And I was like, you know, we need to move in together. Um, I want a more solid commitment from you. So I was you know, he would always say, no, I can't do this. No, I can't do that. And then I would push and say, yeah, we need to do this. Like, if you want to be with me, we need to move in together. So I have one question. Mm -hmm. Before we get to this part, you know, when the person was already at the home, mm -hmm. were you afraid to say no in the sense of if I say no now, this person is here? All hell will break loose. I think that we had been talking about it and it was unexpected, okay. you know. Um, and I think at the time I just felt like, well, he had been pressuring me for so many months. I just felt like I just need to go ahead and get this over with, you know, because he'd been telling me I need to experience this. I need to do this. You know, this is going to be great for our relationship. I, can't, I still can't wrap my mind around um some of these things, but I think it was more out of my need to be that perfect woman for him and to, to have him want me, you know, to, 
because he would be all about me and then he would pull away. He'd be all about me, then he'd pull away. Okay, so you were getting the push uh, and the push and pull of everything was you were getting the heroin fix and then it was being taken away. So you were in that yes. cycle. Okay. So But it wasn't he you know, he would get angry over little things like um I moved something in his apartment and then he would he'd be super angry and I would be you know, they talk about walking on eggshells, but for me, it was kind of like a sprayed roach. He would lose his temper a lot over silly things that didn't make sense to me and would blame it on his PTSD. So it could be something as simple as I moved something he thought that I hadn't moved. Or we go to the grocery store and somebody looks at him a certain way. He's getting kicked out of the grocery store. Um, he was always having meltdowns in public. It was like Jekyll and Hyde. And so I always felt like kind of like a spread roach. Like, what do I do? Like, I, I never knew what I was going to do to anger him. So if he got angry, I would kind of panic a little bit and start trying to do everything I could to make him happy. So I, I was on edge a lot, um, never knowing when he was going to fly off the handle. And it was always for things that didn't make sense at all. And he would never take responsibility for that. He would just basically say it was his PTSD. So basically we had been together maybe seven or eight months. And, um, you know, his commitment to me was, I'm just going to choose you daily. And so my mind was that I want a better, bigger commitment than that. And I want us to move in together. So he does agree to move in with me. And by this time I'm pressuring him for marriage. Um, he's like, no, I'm never getting married again. My ex-wife screwed me over. I'm never going to have that happen. She took all my belongings and everything I owned, and I'm not going to go through that again. It's enough that I commit to you daily, right? Um, so we move in together. Um, for the first, like, five or six weeks, it's a nightmare. It's a complete nightmare because... He's angry that all most of the stuff in the house is mine. Well, he didn't have anything to bring but a couple things. Like, I, I pretty much owned everything. He was angry over everything. Um, he felt like I was taking advantage of him. Um, you know, if I asked him to pick up groceries, he was mad about that. So all of a sudden, he's mad about every little thing. Um, I'm paying for my 75% of everything. And he's just giving me a small amount of money each month towards the rent. I'm buying the food. I'm paying all the utilities. You know, he's basically paying for his phone and giving me a few bucks. Um, so he actually did take me on a trip in that, that uh, February. It wasn't for Valentine's Day because he didn't celebrate, but he took me away for Valentine's. Um, the whole time that we were there, I actually had the flu and I was really sick, but I didn't say anything to him because I knew he wasn't going to take kindly to have spent money on me because he rarely did for me to be sick and us to have to go home. So I went through the weekend trip, um, being really sick. And then on the way home, I was like, Hey, I've got to go to the doctor and that, and then I got diagnosed with flu, and I was in the bed. And he, I had asked him, I was like, so sick, can you please go get groceries for us and cook dinner? 
Um, and he was angry about that. So for like two days, he barely came around. Uh, he would go out late, um, come home and go to bed, not talk to me. Um, because I was taking advantage of him and treating him badly for asking him to get groceries. And I remember at that time thinking, wow, you know, like I caretake for him all day. I rub his head. I rub his back. I have sex with him all the time. I pay for for majority of everything. I put up with his moods out in public. I put up with him embarrassing me all the time. I, I put up with his anger towards my children and, but I can't tolerate the fact that he won't help me when I'm sick. Like he won't even help me when I'm sick. And I just remember being, you know, the fighting was, there was a lot of fighting going along happening at that time because, um, you know, once we definitely moved in together, things started to change. Like he got more moody, more angry, more frustrated with me. Um, you know, it, it wasn't showing me off anymore. It was basically, you know, making fun of me in front of people. Or he would talk about my, um, how I spoke. And he would always use big words because, you know, I did, didn't do too well in vocabulary. And my parents come from kind of an area where you use a lot of slang. And so he had real command of the English language. And so he would use all these big words. Um, when we would fight, it would go in circles. He would use words maybe that I didn't understand. And then he would tell me that, you know, people were going to judge me for how I spoke. And so he uh, would criticize me in, in ways like that. And he was always um, trying to find a way to confuse me with words. And <clears throat> so shortly after we moved in together, it was probably March, uh, he started hounding me again about having another um, sexual relationship with someone. So I gave in, and we had another episode with a person at our home. And, um, and I just remember again, feeling a lot of shame and guilt over it and feeling bad about it. And right after the person left, he comes running into the room like a little kid. He's all excited and he proposes marriage to me. And, um, it's like, okay, you know, now he's got somebody he's got control of that will do what he wants, and now he'll propose marriage to me. So it was like the worst possible, like, I've just had sex with other people with him. I'm feeling terrible about it, and this is when he chooses to propose to me. And um, Are you, you know, so, a, so when he proposes to you internally – what is your reaction? Are you happy about it? Or are you like, what have, what have I gotten myself into? I think internally I was thinking to myself, I deserve better than this. And what am I doing? But I had been pressuring him for marriage for several months. And at the same time I was excited, but I thought, why would you choose now? Why would you do it this way? And it was very disappointing for me. Um, it, I, I felt con conflicted about it, definitely. But then afterwards, I thought, okay, great. I get to be Mrs. B. 
and I let it go. Um, then the wedding preparations started, um, and he would act out like every time there was something that had to do with the wedding, like we went to the tuck store. He didn't want to go in there. He didn't want to be involved in any of it. If I wanted the wedding, it was on me. So I spent, he didn't spend one penny on the wedding. I paid for the wedding myself. Um, and everything that came that was important to me for the wedding, he would fight about. I'm not taking pictures at a wedding. I don't believe in taking photographs. And I was like, well, you know, so eventually he gave in, but he wouldn't pose for any photographs. So there, every anything that I really wanted, he would, he would bucket. We go to the tux place, and I don't know, the lady there didn't answer a question in the way that he thought she should. So he strips down in the middle of the store and starts having a temper tantrum. So these are the things that he would do. Um, and I'm still, at this time, excusing everything away for his PTSD. I have a strange question. Mm-hmm. It might not be a strange question, but when you say to yourself, you know, eventually he did come around and, you know, said yes. And for let's a thing like the pictures and for you, you know, he wanted something, but his was like really sex related and a real boundary. And, but eventually you came around and said, yes. Are mm-hmm. you saying to yourself in these situations, this is what a relationship is. There's compromise here going on. He's compromising being in pictures when he didn't want to. So I should compromise doing these other things, uh, even though I don't want to, except the things that he's compromising on are really basic things where the things you're compromising on are extreme boundary issues. I think um, I didn't know what I don't. I'm still sorting that out, but that I definitely think that you're right about that. Like, cause I'm not too far out on this whole, um, ordeal between us where I'm still trying to piece together everything that happened to me. Like I'm just getting out of the fog and the confusion of all of it. Um, I think at this time I'm just so desperate to, to have him, the push and the pull to keep him, to please him, that I'm willing to put aside almost everything that I want. And that, yes, he's made this concession for me. Like, he's put up such a big fight, but at the very end, he's going to give in because look what he does for me. He forgives me all the time. Um, So when he acts out, why am I not forgiving him? You know, he gets up every day and he has to forgive me for my behaviors And that would be his excuse for, you know, if I got upset about something he was doing, um, I wasn't being forgiving. Look at all that he does for me. Um, But I would say in my back of my mind, what is it that he's doing for me? You know, but I was still so hooked on him. Uh, the, the, The highs that would come or the heroin that would come after the fight and the love bombing. Um, cause he would just love bomb me with all this affection and well, a, an important and- thing you just said there was, what is he doing for me? And what's going on here is he's creating the situation for him to then compromise on. 
So, so, (laughs) so, and on your end, you know, you're not creating the situation of having a threesome. He's the one creating that situation for you to compromise on. You know, you're having a wedding. These are pictures. It's a normal thing. He's creating the chaos uh, about it. And then he's then compromising saying, and you're saying to yourself, oh, he compromised. But no, he created that situation to compromise on. You know, it's not a normal thing. That is what a master manipulator he is. Like, he did that throughout our entire relationship to look like he was giving me something. When he really wasn't. He was just just taking it away to begin with, only to give it back to you. That's correct. Absolutely. And I can see that very clearly now. Very clearly. So we, we get married in September, but in August, I turned 50. And, um, on my 50th birthday, which was a big deal for me, um, we get in an argument and I said, I can't take this anymore. I can't take the way you treat me. I, he was standing in the bedroom door. I was at the end of the hallway and I took my ring off and I threw it in his direction. And before I could even register in my brain, he has come down the hall and he has picked me up by my neck. He has me up in the air, and he slams me down onto my head, and he's choking me. And um, I was screaming, um, and he held me down there for a little bit and then let me go. And then I was like, oh, my God, you know. So then again, I was like, what did you just do to me? Like, we're done. We're over with. Get out of the house. I don't want anything to do with you ever again. So he starts begging and pleading and crying and, and all this and that. And, um, I went and stayed in a hotel for the first time at this time for a couple days. But in the meantime, you know, he had actually been, this was a big deal. I forgot. Um, I was always trying to help him with his healing. So he had this big story about, um, the war And, you know, having gone through all these horrible things in Iraq, and I was like, well, you know, you deserve to get disability for that. You know, you need, you deserve that. Like, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going through hell every day living with you with your PTSD. You're going through hell every day telling me you're suicidal all the time. You know, your mood swings and all that, you need to be compensated. So he had started the process after much persuasion from me to get VA disability. Okay. Um, Also, he would often talk about this partner of his. He said he did search and rescue in the Navy. And this partner, they could read each other's minds. They were so close. And this partner died and it was his fault. And, um, you know, so he had this big, long, elaborate story about why his friend had died, and he would cry about that all the time. And he never really cried. He would tear or act, you know, basically. And so I was like, you know, like, you need to, we need to get to the bottom of this. Like, you can't carry this burden your whole life, you know, for your friend, Bob. And, you know, like, Let's reach out to the family. Let's go to the cemetery. Let's whatever we need to do for you to work this out. So there was the military and him getting counseling. And, of course, in his counseling, he was supposed to be in group counseling with other Iraq vets. But he convinced his counselor into 
just seeing him individually because he had social anxiety. Um, so the reason why I couldn't be with a group of veterans is because I found out later he was never in Iraq. He was never in the Iraq war. It was a lie. Um, he was never in search and rescue. He was in the military, and this friend died, but the big elaborate story that he had around it was not true. Um, so all this PTSD and everything, but he was always going on about fireworks and loud noises and all the acting out was fake. It wasn't, it wasn't true. Uh, we decided to buy a house. So the goal is we're going to buy this house on a lot of property and we're going to open up a dog kennel. And so by this time, his business is making a lot of money. Um, and we buy this property in December. It's a beautiful house out in the woods. And two months later, um, I get cancer. So we were married about five months, and I find out I have breast cancer. And I remember, you know, he actually was the one that found the cancer because he he pinched my breast, and it hurt, and that's how I found the tumor. And so I remember the day that I found out I had cancer. I remember him, you know, I remember feeling at the time, you know, I need to call my family and my friends, and this is what I want to do. But he insisted that I stay in the bed with him, and he hold me for several hours, and that I do it the way that he wanted me to do it. And so I remember just laying there in bed, you know, crying and thinking, you know, like, I really don't want to be here right now. I want to be on the phone with my family. Um, and so for like the first week, he was really loving and kind and everything like that. But then he just became very aggressive on how I should grieve my cancer, what I should and shouldn't do. Um, and unbeknownst to me at that time, he was reaching, he then started aggressively reaching out to other women for sex. So here I have cancer and he's pressuring me to go out and have sex. And I'm like, uh, I can't do that right now. Like I can't, I couldn't think like the pandemic had hit. So I was in the nursing field and I was just trying to get through to the end of March so that I could have surgery without picking up COVID. Um, and I just became very neurotic about COVID. I was very scared, uh, that I, I wasn't going to be able to have surgery because at that time, you know, they were closing down a lot of surgeries and things like that. And so I'm still trying to work full time and get to this process. So, um, B didn't believe in, um, COVID. And so he, through that whole time that I was sick, he refused to use any COVID precautions. So while I was at the hospital having my mastectomy, um, he's there raising all kinds of hell with administration so that he can stay in the hospital with me. But they're not letting anybody do that. They let him stay, you know, while I was having surgery, but then he had to leave afterwards. And so he basically got escorted out of the hospital by multiple um, security guards. But that was his way of showing me he loved me by raising total hell and getting kicked out of the, and look at me, I'm this hero trying so hard to save my wife. But at the same time, he's calling his ex-girlfriend, the one I thought, he had left for me and asking her for sex um, and just going nuts, asking people for sex um, unbeknownst to me. So 
I am going through this whole, I get home from the hospital. I apparently, he is calling and texting some of his trusted friends. You know, he didn't sign up for this. Um, He, I was trying to make him my bitch because I needed water or, you know, I just had my breast whacked off and I needed food or help. Or I had to take care of my bandages, my own drains. I had to do everything. Like, I, he tried to help me, like, once. And then, you know, he would tell me that I was an asshole and be angry at me for not saying please and thank you appropriately or, you know, whatever it is that I wasn't doing right. Um, I was bullying him. Um, and so I was really kind of on my own and isolated because we were in a pandemic. So what winds up happening is in May, about five weeks after my mastectomy, um, I can't go to sleep one night and I realized that he has logged on to my computer and not logged out. And this is the first time I've had the opportunity to look into anything of his. It just opened up this huge world of everything that he was doing. And I mean, I found just, the most heartbreaking things. I mean, him writing these women saying, poor me, my wife has cancer. Please come suck my, you know what, can we meet at so-and-so to have sex? Just all this stuff, you know, and I'm sitting here going through like huge body image crisis. Like I already had body image crisis from my childhood with my breasts. And I now had butchered breasts and missing a breast. And I um, am, having a lot of emotional issues over that. And my husband is using that as a way to try to get sex from other people. And I was devastated. So I woke him up and we got into this big argument. And this was the first time where he kind of really got, he trapped me in a room upstairs and um, first he ripped the door off the, the, the wall and then he trapped me in the room and um, cornered me and you know basically fought with me for several hours turned it around to like well how, how do you expect me to live in this house with your ex-husband's photographs on the wall like my ex-husband was a photographer and I had some images of my hometown in a room upstairs and so I lost my temper and I was I took them off the wall and bust them up I just you know like he pushed me so far I was so um you know, I was so hurt and upset by what he had done, and then now all of a sudden it's my fault because he has to live in this house with pictures from my past. And and so then I got in my – he grabbed my keys, wouldn't let me leave the house, that kind of thing. And eventually I found a spare key, and I just got in my car. I wasn't supposed to be driving, and I drove back to my hometown. And I stayed there for like four four days. And – Um, actually that morning before I left, when we were fighting, I got a phone call from my doctor's office and they were like, well, Ethel, you need chemotherapy. So I was like, great. I just found out my husband's doing all this stuff and now I need chemo. So then I was really stuck because I had to come back. I, I had to have chemo (laughs) and we're in the middle of a pandemic. So I, it was just the most horrific time in my life. Um, he, I was by myself 
you know, I couldn't get any resources because everything was closed down due to the pandemic. Um, no one could come with me to support me do the chemo. I was having a lot of PTSD over the chemo. Um, apparently, I was a bully and unable to, you know, my trying to make my husband my bitch because I needed help. And, you know, after my first chemo, um, so he would not, he wouldn't, he would never use COVID precautions. And so I was very scared over that. Like I was going through chemotherapy. I got really sick after my first chemo. Um, and I I had told him earlier in the day, you know, like I'm getting sick. And he's like, nothing's wrong with you. And I'm like, well, yeah, I think I'm getting sick. I think you have a fever. No, your thermometer's not working. I don't believe it. So I'm, like, checking my temperature. I got a fever of 101. I mean, I'm smart enough to know I've been a nurse for 30 years that I can die after having chemo with a fever. But because he kept telling me, nothing's wrong with you, nothing's wrong with you, I'm doubting myself. Well, am I, am I, do I really have a fever? Is my thermometer really working? So I just went ahead and went to bed. So about midnight, I couldn't take it anymore. I had a high fever, uh, like 102.5. And I say to him, and I'm thrashing in bed. I'm in horrible pain. I'm in terrible bone pain. I'm thrashing back and forth. And he's irritated with me because I'm keeping him awake. You know, he can't sleep through the night due to his PTSD, and I'm keeping him awake, and he's mad. So I tell him, look, I need you to call a doctor. Like, I, I, I was scared to go to the ER at the time because of COVID, and I... And so, long story short, he's very angry that he's having to call the doctor. He's mad he can't find the piece of paper. He's angry at the doctor when the doctor calls. And finally, the doctor was like, listen, Mr. B, um, your wife could be dead. You need to get her to the emergency room. So he gets off the phone. And I'm so weak, I can't, I can't sit up, and I'm in pain. So he's like, well, come on, let's go. And I'm like, well... I need help. Like, I need some clothes. So he's like, I don't know where your clothes are. And I was like, just open my drawers and get something for me. So he pulls out some clothes and he throws them on the bed. And I was like, you got to dress me. Like, I can't sit up. So he re very reluctantly dresses me, gets me out to the car. And the whole way there, I'm thinking to myself, Ethel, please have a fever when you get to the ER. Because I was more scared of the repercussions of not being sick from him than I was of potentially dying from the chemo. So we get to the hospital, and I have a fever, and they take me back, and they're doing, just doing all this stuff frantically. And then all of a sudden, he turns into the concerned and loving husband. So this is kind of how it went through my chemo. And... Finally, after the second chemo, I said to him, he kept bringing people to the house for dog training sessions. Um, I would tell him, I don't want anybody coming in. They're coming from an area where COVID is bad. He refused to wear a mask. And finally, I said, look, I'm, I'm going back to my hometown. I'm going to finish out chemo there because I'm not dying because you won't protect me. And he's telling all his flying monkeys, I'm crazy. Um, my hormones have changed me. I'm not the same person. Well, yeah, I'm going through cancer. I'm going through menopause. I'm going through all this. And, you know, he's telling everybody how neurotic I am and, you know, how horrible it is he has to put up with my behavior. And he's sowing all these seeds with these people that I don't re realize it's happening at the time. And my family is really upset about the way he's treating me. Um, but, 
everybody's, you know, I'm kind of trapped with COVID. And so, well, so, so for everyone who's listening and we've all heard stories that during COVID, especially the first few months of COVID hitting and everyone having to be indoors, that the rate of domestic violence and incidents went up dramatically. And in your case, uh, this is what happened. And to, then to top it all off, you also have cancer in the situation mm-hmm. where you need to be as healthy as possible during this whole entire process. You need no stress whatsoever. And you have the opposite. You have, you have complete fear going on where you're the one who's sick and you're the one taking care of his mood. So his mood doesn't fall back onto you and mm-hmm. you're in a terrible situation here. Like many people were in during this time and, mm-hmm. and, you know, to throw cancer on top of it all, throw chemotherapy onto it where your, your brain isn't, your brain wasn't functioning well as far as the fog went before. And now you throw this on top of it. It's hard for you to do anything at this point. Right. Yeah, it was horrendous. And then I find out about him talking to other women. Also, the business that we had built uh, that we had bought the property for, he informs me that I'm not on the business, that, you know, I'm too wishy-washy of a person that he's not going to put me as a partner on the business. Um, Also, he has another power of attorney besides me. And um, so I'm finding out all these things, um, at, and it was just the, it was a tremendous weight. Um, one just really horrible thing that he did is I had eventually gone out in public with him, and we had gone to a store, and of course he wasn't wearing a mask at the time, and everything, and he was touching everything, and I was like, I had this one little tiny bottle of hand sanitizer. It was where a time where you couldn't get it in the stores. It was like a lifeline for me. And I hand him the bottle of hand sanitizer and he threw it back at me and licked his fingers. And um, I was just so upset about it. Um, And then we get, we kind of get out to the car from the store and I hand him the hand sanitizer again and he starts to roll down his window. And I was like, don't throw that out. You know, I need that. I'm going to get out of the car if you do that. And so he throws it and chucks it across the parking lot. And then I thought to myself, do I jump out of the car? Because then he starts speeding through the parking lot. He slams on his brakes because he almost hits another car. And I hop out to go get the hand sanitizer, and he leaves me. So here I am. I'm going through chemo. I don't have a mask. I don't have a purse. I don't have a phone. And he leaves me in the parking lot for over 30 minutes And I'm too petrified to go into the store to make a telephone call. And I'm just sitting there, like, in this parking lot, bald and crying, right? (laughs) So I go through this whole process with him, um, with lots of other things happening. And then we started a doggy daycare. My daughter moves here to begin the doggy daycare. And within a short period of time, she stops working for us because he basically beats 
her childhood dog to death, almost to death, and then has to resuscitate the dog in front of her. And then she will talk to him again, and she stops working for us. So um, I'm kind of in, in this place, like, oh, my God, what do I do? Like, we built this huge business up. He's, you know, just done this thing. I don't know what to do. I'm kind of, I, I don't know what to do about it. So he says, we need somebody else to work for us. So there was this young girl uh, that she, her and her husband were friends of ours. And um, I thought, okay, she's a safe person to bring into the house. She's, she's 25 years old. She's like our number one dog client. So she begins working for us. And that's when the triangulation starts. Him and I are fighting a lot at this point. I've left him a couple times due to the way that he has treated me through the cancer. And he begins a tape comes attached to her. She is actually a trauma victim herself. Her father sexually abused her. She was going through counseling for that. And he just attaches right to her. And what I don't know is happening is he's telling her all these horrible things about me. He's pitting me. He's pitting us against one another. And he's treating her like he's love bombing her like he did me. And then when she's not around, he's treating me really bad, and he's making it look like I'm crazy, I'm, I'm a, this horrible bitch. Um, she's in the house like six days a week. Um, we begin fighting about that all the time because he wants her upstairs, and he wants her around all the time. There's no place in the house where I have privacy. And so he just really begins pitting us against one another. In the meantime, he's latching onto her. And by this time, his business is making a lot of money um, and all cash. So what happens is, is that about two weeks before the incident happens, um, I look through his car and I find condoms. Um, and we don't use those. So I, I basically, I went to this young girl and told her that I was going to be leaving him, but I didn't have anywhere to go, so it was going to be very stressful in the house. And it's at that point that I find out, you know, that she hates me. She thinks I'm fake. She thinks she she basically tells me all these horrible things she feels about me. So that's that's when I kind of begin putting two pieces together about what's going on between the two of them. So that night, he comes home. Um, he corners me up in the room. He's calling me a stupid fucking bitch. He's telling me he's going to kill my dogs. He's going to um, take me for alimony because, of course, I'm the only one showing any income because all of his money is hidden. Um, and he, he does all this threatening to me, and, um, and then I leave. Okay. So I come back a little bit later. We decide to work it out. We agree to forgive each other for everything and put it in the past that he would open his phone and um, computer to me so that I could see all that, um, that we would keep this girl away from the house for a week and that she would have to give me an apology when she comes back. And this was what I agreed to. And I tape recorded all this because he was telling me that I was crazy and that I wasn't remembering things. So what happens is she goes away, and we have a week. It was great. It was wonderful. It was kind of back like it had been in the beginning. We just had this great week. The day she comes back, um, you know, he's laughing and joking with her all day, and the end of the day comes, and I'm like, well, am I going to get my apology? And she, he's like, no. 
Um, I'm not going to make her apologize to you. So she winds up staying downstairs and listening to us fight for like 45 minutes. And then she goes to leave. By this time, I am at the point of crazy, right? I'm, I'm anxious. I'm riled up. I'm screaming. I go outside and I tell her, don't you fucking come back to my property until you give me an apology. So she starts calling me a bitch, telling B to come get his bitch, and then tells me that he's going to take her over me, and then she leaves. So I lose my ever-loving mind, right? I'm screaming. I'm carrying on. I've completely lost. I've gone basically insane. I'm screaming for like a half an hour. He finally calls me, calms me down and says, well, you can't emotionally handle this, so I'm getting rid of the daycare, and I'm getting rid of her. So he tells me he's gotten rid of her. So the next day, we go out on a date day. And we, we have a great day, but I had paid attention that night to his phone code because he had never opened his phone to me. And I had gotten into his phone that morning and realized that um, he had not canceled anything with her, and they were talking about how they were going to handle me. So we went on our date, got home that evening. He fell asleep, and I got on his phone. So he wakes up um, and finds me on the phone. And he starts yelling at me to give him back his phone. And I'm like, no. So I go in the bedroom. Um, I see him raging. And uh, he's like, give me my phone. And I was like, no, you gave me permission to look at the phone. So I got up. And next thing you know, he comes across the bed. He's got me around the neck. He throws me into the dresser. And my brain didn't even register it until I felt the pain. You know, because it was just so fast. Um, and then he flips me around and he slams me down onto my head and he's choking me. Um, and um, I'm screaming, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. He lets me go. And then we're in each other's face yelling. And this was the first time that I really saw, like, the real evil in him. Like, he, his eyes were, like, black and his fist was balled up. And he says to me, you don't know who I am. And I was like, I do. You're a B. And if you hit me, I'm going to call your parole officer because he's still on parole. And um, so then he says, you're getting out of my house, you fucking crazy bitch. I'm done with you. He grabs all my stuff. He throws it out. Um, then he um, tackles me on the bed again and chokes me, hurting me, pulling my arm and throws me onto the bathroom floor and eventually drags me through the house, picks me up and tosses me in the air out the door and locks me out of the house. And so at, the, at that time, I'm like in total shock and I, I can't even register what's happened to me. He does throw my, um, my purse out, but with my keys, but I was never allowed to lock the house because he, if I locked the house, that meant I didn't think he could protect me because he's got a martial arts background, by the way. And we never used the key. So he could lock me out even though I had my keys because we didn't have a house key. So I got in the car and, uh, you know, I was in shock and I called the police. And so at that time, it was, um, you know, I knew he was going to go to jail. Um, and one thing that he did that I, I want people to be aware of is... It took the police about 24 hours to arrest him. And 
I only, and he's still in jail at this time, and he's only in jail, I believe, because of his prior conviction, and he's on parole. Um, and they believed me. Um, but the police at first didn't believe me. Um, my husband had concocted a story by the time I had driven five miles down the road, he had already called his parole officer and the police and reported me for attacking him. And within the next morning, left and went up to the courthouse and filed as a victim against me so that by the time I finally got myself together a week later, uh, with the help of my parents and everything, I could not get services because it was a conflict of interest for me. So the police told me, you know, go down and file, go down and file. But at that time, even after he'd done all this stuff to me, all I could do was cry over he was in jail. I had been so conditioned about his parole, never send him back to jail. Um, poor him, you know, I sent him money so that he had food. I was calling the jail trying to bring in his guitar and his medication and his art supplies. Like, all I could do was cry and feel this horrible remorse and then be re-victimized by his flying monkeys who told me it was all my fault. You know, I had just gone through this tremendous, horrible thing to have these people turn around and tell me, how could I do such a thing to him to put him away? And I knew when I made that telephone call what was going to happen to him. I think it's taken me three months of doing nothing but crying um, the, the physical and chemical addiction to him was horrific. Like after he went to jail, I found out, you know, he'd never been Iraq. I found out, you know, so many lies, like basically everything about him is an embellishment or a lie. Um, but it was so difficult for me to believe that this person didn't really love me. Um, you know, it was hard for me to believe that I had gone through all that for a lie. And I think that's where your show really came in, um, to help me was to listen to these other women tell their stories and to hear my story in that story and to know that I wasn't crazy. And an, an old friend of his that he had known for 20 years had realized he was a narcissist and began talking to me. And she's the one that pointed me to your um, your podcast. And um, she gave me a book called Healing from Hidden Abuse. It was huge, huge for me. Um, Psychopath Free was huge for me. But in the beginning, I didn't want to believe, really believe he was this horrible person. Um, I couldn't accept it, and all I did was worry about him. I wasn't going to prosecute him, um, but he made that young girl his power of attorney. He stole a bunch of the property and gave it to her. Um, she went and tried to file against me a protection order. I began seeing all these things that he plotted out in less than 24 hours to... Um, to hurt me and I just had to keep I mean I'm telling you I have been abused in so many ways I've experienced the death of a spouse I've gone through cancer and nothing nothing hurt me as bad as this 
So I just want to encourage, you know, I didn't want to go through with the no contact. I just couldn't bear the thought of having no closure with him. I couldn't bear the thought of not talking to him. And people kept pushing me, do the no contact, do the no contact. And if anything that someone could do is go no contact. It was the most painful thing I've experienced. But without it, I would I would be right back in it. He would talk me out of it. He would love bomb me. He would lie to me. I was so addicted to him. Um, and now I'm just angry. And um, having some PTSD over, over it. But it's taken me months to get just a clear mind. And I think that... Um, it's important, in my opinion, for anybody who's going through it to read, 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 educate. Because I didn't know anything about narcissism at all until my friend pointed me in this direction. You know, she knew him well. And um, I think I'd be lost without that. And I think your show is so important because, you know, just like when I became a widow at a young age, people were well-meaning, but... It was only those people that were widows themselves that really understood what I was going through. And I think that's why your forum is so important, is it's validating. And you're really good at kind of sorting out things like I'm still trying to figure out. And, um, you know, I hear you talk to other people and, it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Or I, feel, I see my life in that. And. It's really helped me sort things out. I've got an amazing counselor, and she's been a real lifeline for me. So um, I'm exercising, I'm eating right, and I have not touched, um, you know, I, there were many times where I just wanted to drink, you know. I just wanted to drink, but I told myself, nope, you know, you've got to feel this and get through this, and you can't drink. So I, I didn't use any substances, and like I said, I'm, I'm now, you know, thinking clearly. I um, Fortunately, he's still in jail, and there's a trial coming up for that. And I have a feeling that, you know, uh, that there's a pending divorce. That'll probably be World War III coming up. Um, I'm sure he's going to try to take whatever he can possibly take from me. Um, but I'm, I'm fortunate in the fact that, you know, I can financially take care of myself. And so my heart really does break for many of these women that get in that situation where they, they have no finances. And I would just say, you know, however you can find a way. And I will never give up that career. I was right at the point before this happened of letting go of my job and running this business with him. Um, but I would just stress, you know, find a, a way of supporting yourself and never let that go. So, what, you know, you just gave us a little bit of wisdom uh, that you have. So what would be your words of wisdom and advice for everyone listening? Um, it's very similar to what everyone else says, which is trust your gut instinct. And I think when you find yourself in the situation like I'm in where you're getting out of it, look inward um, because that's the work I've never done. I've never looked inward as to 
what is going on with me that made me a magnet to a narcissist? And it's not your fault. Like, that's been really hard for me to accept. I was very conditioned that it was my fault. Um, and, um, you know, find a way not to let people shame you because I think people do shame you. Um, and that's why I think reading and reading and education and, um, you know, keeping yourself healthy, but go no contact. That's the number one thing. Whatever you have to do, journal, 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 run laps around your neighborhood, cry for hours, you know, whatever you need to do, stay no contact because you can't get clarity of mind at all until you haven't talked to that person. That's the, I think that's the only way that I've really gotten out of it is the no contact. And everything in my soul didn't want that. But I guess that's my biggest piece of advice. Well, Ethel, first I just want to thank you for being here, number one. Number two, you saved your own life by calling the police that day. And you just didn't save your own life. It's possible that you save someone else's life who will be next. Or there might not be a next person because, you know, he might go to jail for a little while longer. So mm -hmm. you should be proud of yourself of what you did. And, you know, as you said, as you said before, you didn't do anything wrong. And you were in a really bad situation and now you're safe. And that's the most important thing that you are alive and, right. you know, someone who's willing to put their hands around their neck, your neck is someone that can take your life. And you are here with us today and you're going to share, you're sharing your story today. And it's important that you share your story. It's, you know, it's domestic violence awareness month and, um, you are a survivor and you has been a survivor your whole entire life. And now you're going to get a chance to discover who you are. You're going to get a chance to be the person you always wanted to be and learn the things about yourself that you've always wanted to learn. And you're going to get to be you and experience the highs and lows of that journey. And I'm happy you are here. I'm happy you are able to share your story. And, um, you know, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Everyone who's listening is thanking you for sharing your story today. You're going to help a lot of people and, you know, we're all giving you a big hug right now because you, you deserve one. And, um, yeah. you know, so from everyone, thank you. And, you know, for everyone who's listening, you know, this is, you know, the, the middle of Domestic Violence Awareness Month in 2021. It's been, you know, right before this all began, we all started hearing of the, the Gabby Petito story. So, um, you know, pay attention to all these things when, when people are in relationships and, and um, you know, thank you, I guess, once again, Ethel, for, for, for being here. And so from myself and Ethel... Um, Thank you for listening, and we hope you have a good...
Night. <laughs>